It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome to Broken Potholes with your hosts, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. We have another fantastic lineup of guests for you today. First on the program, something someone Chuck and I are pretty eager to talk to because I think you all know where we stand on China. We've got Paul Boardman, chairman of Decouple China Pack. You can follow them, decouplechina.org. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Chuck, it's a real pleasure talking about a very difficult subject. Um, we need to move beyond the, the fear that China uh, puts on us into uh, action and uh, to uh, a point of actually we need to uh, engage in even some humor uh, to uh, lighten the load of the fear that China. When I think of China, the CCP, I think of all of the evil global empire villains that we've ever seen on any movie ever <laughs> and combined into one in real life. And I think you know that I ran for Congress in the West Los Angeles district. I was a GOP nominee twice. Mm. And uh, if I have a few movie references, I hope you don't mind. No, I, actually, our audience loves that. So it's, it's Sam, <laughs> Sam and I appreciate movie references. It makes it more entertaining for Jamie and Kip to edit these videos. It makes well, it more interesting to edit the videos. So we it, love the And one of the things that's culture. going on, Paul, Chuck, is, is I think one of the reasons that a lot of movies these days, frankly, just suck is because you're not allowed to have real villains. Well, right. no, well, it's no, it, and it's hard. It's hard with Hollywood being financed so much by China, but right. that's, that's a topic for another day. Paul, China's big oh, film was was this year was them defeating us in World yeah, War Three, yeah, right? Exactly. So, Paul, so. tell us, tell our audience why we should be concerned about China, and if you were in Congress, what are the measures you would take that you think are appropriate, and at the same time. I think what happens is just a lot of hyperbole. For example, I, I was talking to a friend this morning just saying NPR is completely subsidized by the government. I said, no, it's actually 2%. And they were shocked by that. So a lot of times we get these statements and they're just these these broad strokes saying this is what it is. But what are things, if you're in Congress, we could specifically do to start somehow recognizing their threat to our way of life, to the world's way of life, um, at the same time, not overreacting to it. Well, short of declaring war, which triggers a lot right. of uh, specific statutes, and they have basically declared war on us, uh, it, lo- it appears that Congress is systematically uh, taking uh, uh, the uh, lessons out of that declare war playbook and starting to implement uh, those acts individually. And you just saw today a uh, pretty good one, I thought, by uh, um, Senator from uh, uh, Sullivan introducing the Stand with Taiwan Act, which imposes crippling mm. economic sanctions if China militarily invades Taiwan. So it is true that whether you're uh, Chuck Schumer or Todd Young from Indiana, uh, you are in line uh, at, with uh, pushing back on China. That is absolutely happening, and that's really good news. You know, you know we can solve the CCP. I call it the global control madness. Um, we need people to sign our pledge, donate, boycott China-made products, and buy USA um, at decouplechina.org. I, I do believe the CCP is like a very, very bad habit. 
And I don't believe the USA will, will stand with China and let freedom fall. Um, I, I do believe that America will no longer beg China. Um, CCP's demonic, degenerate, immoral, sordid, foul, warped slavery regime, and that's my belief, is not the American way and what the world wants. So here we are today. We can go through a list. Uh, you know, jihadists, they blow things up. The Russians, they play a chess game. It is really, we do understand what the Russians are doing, what Putin's doing. Almost all of us have a sense of what's going on there. But China's M.O. is different. If I had to try to get across a point today, we, we need to understand their M.O. Uh, the problem is, when we understand their M.O., it is so frightening that we don't want to um, react to it. And I say, I, I, I just want to give you a quick movie, <laughs> movie reference. I thank, you, thank you, thank you. One of my favorites is Armageddon. Um, I love this. I love this line. I just love it when Owen Wilson and Billy Bob Thornton are talking about the asteroid, and Owen Wilson asks um, uh, him, he says, you know, wh- what's it going to be like up there? And, and uh, Billy Bob Thornton says, 200, 200 degrees in the sunlight, 200 degrees in the shade, canyons of razor sharp, sharp rocks, unpredictable gravitational conditions, unexpected eruptions, things like that. But Owen says, Okay, so the, the, the scariest environment possible. Yeah, that's all you have to say is the scariest environment possible. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so do we want to talk about the fact that um, Chinese cage people, they carve them up in their body parts and sell them. They, like, they want to create a marketplace in that. They're looking at that as a trillion-dollar marketplace. Okay, great. Um, you know, you, you, um, you don't do what they say. They kill your mom or your child. I mean, this is how they roll. This is how the CCP and the PLA roll. It is the scariest environment possible. And, you know, um, you know, Trevor Noah is the comedian that finally gotten into this, which is good because, you know, we look back at World War II and all the things that our parents and grandparents said about it is they had to, had to lighten the load somehow because it was so heinous. So um, you have to, we've got to get comedy involved here. We just have to get to a point in America where, hey, it's the scariest environment possible. We're freedom lovers. We're, we're not going there. We're going to fight it every single day. And it is happening that way. So Congress is at a point where almost everything they talk about is a pushback on China. And well, so you well, have to talk about it in the PAC. My PAC is doing a small part, started 18 months ago, started 18 months ago, doing a small part, and we'll have a pledge to go to all, about, all the candidates out there, state, local, and federal, oh, fantastic. Uh, to decouple China 100% and just give them an opportunity to do that. And that's the focus of the PAC. And there are a few other things we'd like to do. Uh, out there raising money to do it, and a lot of it has to do with forensics and finding out, you know, who owns what, uh, state by state, Chinese, you know, what they really own, and uh, also you have to deal with how are you going to deal with the 380,000 Chinese um, students in America colleges, and it, it seems logical that the 2017 decree by China to um, essentially make them all spies because they there was no due process, and they do have to report when asked, and they have to divulge every bit of information that they've ever learned in the United States, would you, all their contacts, Paul, Paul, would, Paul, would you ban um, Chinese nationals from attending U.S. universities? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. It has to happen. It will happen eventually. Well, you know, I think the one mistake, uh, you know, I consider myself a free market conservative, and I've always had mm-hmm. the philosophy, the same applied to China, same applied to Cuba, that if you open up their economies, people are going to get a taste for freedom, get a taste for a higher standard of living, and they would see that, um, you know. Well, that, that's that, where the Chinese were smart, right? right? But, and so I, I feel like those of us who did it, 
it was a failed experiment on our part, which which saddens me. Um, you want to open up their economies, open up the opportunities for their their citizens, um, so, and it's the same thing in Cuba. And I, I don't and there'd be a debate for another day, but I don't think you can even justify what we did and that it had any long term benefit other than I got cheaper products at Walmart and things of that nature. Am, am I wrong on that? I mean, I feel, you know, some um, businesses have benefited. We've never had a trade surplus with China since Nixon, ever. It's just not happened. But it has our trillions of dollars worth of, I would say, taxpayer investment into opening China has benefited uh, some companies in selling into China or making cheaper products. So they, they, they have the cash. So you're really looking at 329900 90,000 people who do not want to do business with China, and about 10,000 that do. And that 10,000 is shrinking daily. There's a lot of pressure. So how, on how much, so, I mean, how quickly can a lot of, Paul, this is Sam, how quickly can a lot of these companies start decoupling from China and get their businesses out of there? Because, you know, you can go back just obviously right before the start of the pandemic, but even through it, a lot of them are doing everything they can to expand like crazy in China. And, you know, from what we can tell, that is essentially another part of China's spying operation. It's industrial espionage. They're copying all the products that get made there uh, very cheaply and turning them out. These companies are committing suicide, but they don't seem to understand that. <laughs> it's it's shocking. and It's, it's real. It's uh, been going on a long time. And uh, there are other countries that these businesses – well, okay, let's give an example. Uh, it's not – uh, you, you, you might uh, make a flathead screw in America. It costs you, uh, you know, I don't know, five dollars a screw. In China, it's a penny. I mean, the, the profit margin difference isn't close. It's mm-hmm. dramatic. Oh, and slave labor will do all, that. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. And uh, subsidies by the by their government, uh, absolutely. So you think about manufacturing. It usually comes down to the tools. I have to make a part. Well. A tool to make a, to do a small run is you know ten thousand dollars. Well, they don't have those costs in China, uh, so we have to have a scale to manufacture something here in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Over there, they they have, they have all those tools to make the parts uh, uh, you know paid for by the government and so forth. So, so uh, you know, if you just cut off the trade, then it, it's a clear signal to all the companies they just can't invest there. So part of the problem is this slow approach to weeding away from China. Um, if they they can just put their money elsewhere, they can create new economies elsewhere. They can create economies of scale. These are large companies. They could go into uh, Canada or they could go into a state. I mean, look how fast um, uh, with the chip wars we see uh, Intel um, and um, Samsung and TSMC all rushing to the United States to build plants. Uh, Samsung, $17 billion plant going up in Texas. A TSMC, a $12 billion plant in Arizona. Intel's the one tied to our DOD, and they're doing a $20 billion plant. Just announced today in Columbus, Ohio. It, you know, it's extraordinary that when there's a strong need, and in today's marketplace, the investors can garner a guaranteed return. So they're just waiting for the guaranteed return. Change the rule, they can operate and get their guaranteed return, put their money where it needs to go you keep this China thing open, they'll say, oh, it's legal. I can do that. So it, you just cut it off. And, and there's so many 
you think about the millennials, the 70 million, the 70 million Gen Xers, and then the $30 trillion in the baby boomer hands, and you say to yourself, okay, I need to get these people together. And you're looking at um, incredible people in, that, in the millennial and Gen X group who have the next generation of technology. Yeah, Let Paul, them participate in this economic war. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, we have about a minute before we go to break. We're going to bring you back for our next segment. Thank you for joining us. Um, as all these companies are looking at this, should we not be focusing them instead on, I mean, really have a campaign where we say, listen, we need you out of China. And if you want foreign operations, if you want those cheaper operations, the place we really need you is south of our border where you can help build up those economies, which actually might be allies of ours in the future. Absolutely. And the incentive should be there. The U.S. Innovation and Competition Act passed the Senate. It's a $250 billion bill to bolster scientific innovation and, and compete with China specifically. It, it hung up in the House. Uh, I mean, there are, you know, billions of dollars to do just what you're talking about and i talk to these companies every they're just waiting yep. for this money to go through paul we're we're gonna, i'm gonna have to cut you off real quick we're going to break broken potholes will be coming right back you're rocking in the free world with broken potholes We'd like this world to be a lot more free, and one of the big barriers to that freedom right now is China. Uh, and we have a guest we are, Chuck and I are very excited to have on the program today, Paul Boardman, chairman of Decouple China PAC. You can follow them, decouplechina.org. Paul, when we get, went to break, we are talking a little bit about some of the commercial aspects of what's going on with China, but you've talked about how China is waging essentially asymmetrical warfare against the West and what that looks like. Can you tell us what is? I don't think people understand how pervasive and invasive this is. Tell us a little bit about that, if you can. Well, well we spoke in the earlier segment, and, and thank, thank you, Sam, about um, you know, China being implementing the scariest thing possible in the scariest environment possible, and they are. They've been planning this for decades. So you look at the elements of warfare. It goes from economic and financial, business. Uh, I've heard often that uh, this war with China will be fought. It's a white-collar war. Uh, and that's interesting because oh, that you have boots on the ground. But if our businesses do not protect themselves, as we've seen, their intellectual property has been stolen, that, and stolen regularly. That is, that is a brilliant term. Yeah, I love that. So and illegal, legal, they will send people to our country and try to initiate some type of legal action, though. So a person will ride a bicycle, get hit by a car, and then, you know, just sue them. This is it's unbelievable <laughs> the level they go. You know, then the religious. And my point is anything, if there's something that bad happens in the United States of America, just look to the CCP first. And if you look around the world, you'll see how they do this in other countries. It's quite astounding. So, and then there's es- there espionage. Well, if I, if I can hold you up one one second, because we actually are dealing with this quite a bit in Arizona, what you're talking about and around mm-hmm. this country is that the mm-hmm. Mexican drug cartels now mm-hmm. are supplied with their fentanyl, the pills, the chemicals that, that they use to create all their drugs by China. And it, they're trafficking in fear. They want you to know that it's them, but they don't want to get caught. Right? right. So instead of shooting you with a gun and, you know, somebody hears the gun, well, they might just EMP you with a mobile EMP and fry your brain a little. 
I mean, that's how they think. I'm just giving you an example of how they think. So you have to be careful. We really need uh, um, at, we need to be careful at all levels. You need uh, somebody at every county level who's looking out to see what kind of strange activity might be happening in their community. You know, for example, I just read an article that there, uh, there's a strange disease going through the country, killing all of our rabbits. I mean, what, where does that come from? This is the kind of thing they do. They're trafficking in fear and influence, drug warfare, industrial, diplomatic. On the military side, sure, they use, they'll use biological, chemical, uh, space. They just, uh, they just did a deal with Russia uh, to weaponize space, and our space force is, is pushing back against that. Terrorist convention. Anything that you can possibly think of, they'll do it, and they'll do, do it simultaneously. They're not invincible, but they have a lot of problems over there, obviously. Oh, they do. I don't believe their, their yeah. economy is going down. But, for example, they have no clean water at all. I mean, they, they have no, it's just unbelievable. Well, I think, uh, I, think whatever, I think whatever numbers – I used to do a lot of work in China in the 90s. I think whatever mm-hmm. numbers you get in China that they give, um, cut it in half. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they use their GDP, but a lot of that is mm-hmm. the public investment in real estate and roads and so forth. And it's it's sort of a joke. And uh, we were talking earlier before you came on, you know, they're, they have a basically zero COVID policy. They're just not beating it. I mean, they're at the point now this week they've ordered the termination of 2000 hamsters in pet stores because they said <laughs> they said there's people. they said there was a pet store in Hong Kong right. where they had 11 hamsters that all tested COVID. And mm-hmm. one of the employees got COVID, so they've off. You know, they said terminate the hamsters, um, and you know, and then they have a woman that's in one of the cities of the Olympics, and she got COVID, and they say she got it from a letter that was mailed to her from Canada. So there's <laughs> just, you know, they just they just continue, and I, and, I, and I got this this morning from the Hong Kong newspaper <laughs> podcast. So they're just simply, I, I mean, you know, their excuses are about as valid as. Democrats saying they never used a, a filibuster. The, the, I mean, it's pretty bad. The best quote I've ever heard about China is it's a 30-foot country. It looks really impressive until you get within 30 feet of everything, and then you realize it doesn't fit. Well, if it, wasn't, it well. wasn't for the – yeah, if it wasn't for the fact in a lot of ways – I mean, I think 10 years ago we could say a lot there – there was a lot of paper tiger to them, but I think they have put the investment into their military – Mm-hmm. which is frightening, and they are literally going out and playing goodfellas and just buying these third-world countries by saying, well, build a port. There was there was a country two weeks ago that missed their payments on the port, and they just took it. it they've been doing that over oh, yeah. and over. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean it, people are unaware of this. No, they have to be aware of this. You know, oh, I think I'll immigrate to China. Not. <laughs> you know, who wants <laughs> to go <laughs> there? <laughs> I can't imagine it. Well, freedom. I mean, if China has its way, freedom. anywhere you emigrate is going to be China. I mean, that's really what they're trying uh, to do. That's true. Is, is well, that is that's what they want, and you know, they, it, they just want to turn this into zomb- zombies. Maybe a partial lobotomy is what they're up to. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is how they roll. Uh, you know, uh, it it we have to understand. Americans have to understand. They have to become, and Congress does. I can tell you that the in Congress they're together. I like what Kyle Bass said uh, the other day. It it is. Uh, fiduciarily irresponsible to invest in China. He said that. I believe it. It's, that's a, I, I mean, that's just a great quote. And General Panaro uh, got into it. He has a new book out. He was on uh, the news a couple of days ago, and he was very strong uh, and strident. He, of course, he's joining General Keene, and um, there was General Spalding, who retired from the military. He has a, a good book out. So it, it's all coming together. I, I question just is, is it fast enough? Um, you know, uh, are we are we um, responding quickly? Is there enough of a sense of an urgency that we're actually at war? 
I mean, I don't think most people understand that we are at war. Well, no, it's a white it but it's a white collar war. He just said it. I mean, I really don't. Mm-hmm. I don't feel mm-hmm. now. That's an interesting thing, Paul. And I'll ask you this question: Do you have kids? Mm-hmm. Do you have kids? I do. Two boys. Two right, how old yeah. are they? Uh, nineteen and seventeen. So I have a nineteen-year-old. I'm unwilling to send my son to go fight and save Taiwan militarily. Mm-hmm. Right? Are you? Right? Are you there? I'm not there. And so I, well, I, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's that kind of war. Uh, and, and, and that's why I, I like hearing that you're saying it's a white collar. And I've always felt it's not a military exercise we're going to have. They're going to do mm-hmm. the things we're doing. And they're going to play mobster with third world countries and cut off opportunities we have there. They're going to try to encroach upon Central American countries with loans and money and buy them off. Um, and, yeah, the Taiwan situation is interesting. I don't believe China wants to go to war. I, I, I think, you know, they're spreadsheet people. They're going to look and say that doesn't have a good return. Right, I, I, that's what they I want. Agree. I and I like your you, you said your, the mobster the, the, their approach the way you said that, and we're, we're I, it, interestingly enough I think we're doing the right thing with with Taiwan with arming them and right uh, and we're, we continue to go through the South China Sea and we have relation great relate the Quad uh, so a lot of really good things are happening. Uh, Japan is, is obviously pushing back and and uh, so it looks I mean that you know if we keep keep increasing that uh we should we should be good boy they really china does not want trade cut off with the u.s and they do not want us to kick out their students from our schools they love to to, they want the credibility of our institutions what they want is hundreds of ivy league chinese uh people out there so that the world listens to them and just does what they want and their entire their entire economy is built on the trade deficit with us in europe Mm -hmm. yeah uh, mm-hmm, Paul, mm-hmm. Uh, we just got 30 seconds before you go to break. Tell people again how they can follow you, uh, how they can keep in touch and, and stay up with Decouple China. I really appreciate it. DecoupleChina.org. And uh, we'll be having, we'll put up a pledge soon. And, you know, you know, you know boycott China made products by USA and donate to Decouple China PAC so we can get that pledge out and hold our legislators accountable uh, in the uh, 2022 election. Perfect. Paul Boardman, Decouple China, thank you so much. Broken Potholes, coming right back. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your host Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. On the line with us, our second guest today, and thank you for joining us, Harris Alec, reporter for The Washington Times, covering Congress. Uh, before joining the paper, uh, he worked at Breitbart News, lead, was the lead political reporter covering President Joe Biden in the 2020 campaign. He's deeply familiar with this White House. And it has been a pretty rough week for this White House, hasn't it, Harris? Absolutely. Well, this week we saw the president go out and do a uh, almost two-hour press conference, which uh, I think left people more befuddled and confused about where the administration stood than before. Uh, but more importantly, the administration faced two really, really strong defeats on Capitol Hill within the Senate on uh, its push to rewrite the nation's voting laws and then also its push to uh, jettison the filibuster or at least remake the filibuster to get those voting laws passed. Um, this was a essentially a, um, a self-effacing defeat because Democrats really didn't have to push this at all, but they opted to, even though they faced significantly long odds, uh, the voting bill was never going to be able to you know, break through the filibuster no matter what happened. That's just the that's just the fact stemming from 
the simple uh, reality that Democrats only have a 50-50 Senate and uh, they have an eight-seat majority in, in the House and they're governing as if they had 60 seats. And similarly, for the filibuster to remake it or create a carve-out for this voting rights bill, uh, they needed to have all 50 Democrats on board. Um, Senator Sienema from uh, the great state of Arizona and Senator Joe Manchin from the great state of West Virginia uh, were always going to be you know, uh, holdouts on uh, remaking the filibuster. They were always going to be um, potentially opponents of it. And uh, the White House just kind of ignored this. I mean, President Biden went to the Hill himself two weeks ago and he attempted to uh, convince them on this, but this was something they were never going to do. Uh, and fundamentally, I mean, the, the White House here could have focused on, uh, on other priorities. They could have started the year off. Uh, Manchin is talking about uh, revising the Trump era tax cuts. There's some talk about doing something on inflation, but the White House kind of went for this big above-board gesture that uh, really only appeals to the Democratic Party's core base, and it just fell flat on its face. It didn't live up to the realities of uh, governing in a narrowly controlled Congress. Harris, this is Chuck Warren. Um, I have a question about Biden going to the Hill two weeks ago. In the Is it 30-plus years he served in the U.S. Senate, right? It was that long. Am I wrong on that, or is it a little bit less than that? I think it was about uh, 30, 30 plus years, okay. uh, maybe like 36 or 38. So in those 30 plus years, did he ever serve in leadership where he was able to be a whip or majority leader to count votes? No, he did not. Uh, <laughs> his highest uh, positions were obviously so, uh, chairman of foreign relations and chairman of judiciary. And I, and I, and I think that's very, very obvious here. Look, um, he served in that body for... 30-something years, and, you know, uh, time and time again, he uh, he can't seem to get all of his ducks in a row. I, w- I was talking to former Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott uh, about this last week, and, you know, he said that if you're a president, you never go to the Hill unless you're 100% sure that you've got the votes there, because the last thing you want is, um, is senators to rebuke you, because, you know, you don't run for the Senate unless you want to have some influence, unless you want to uh, be able to play the parlor games in Washington, D.C., and, you know, Biden... At one point, I assume understood that and, you know, why you would give the Senate all this influence, and all this power and, you know, all this ability to control the narrative um, is uh, leaving a lot of people flummoxed. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's not counting the votes. He's pursuing uh, positions and pursuing bills that just have no uh, popular political support. Well, Harris, it's just strange that a man that served 30 plus years, never held leadership, never had count votes, never had to lobby or twist arms at his age, thinks that he has this charm and this persuasive skills to go up there and change these minds. It's, 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 it's unfathomable what he's done. Well, in the yeah, a lot of people are certainly saying that. And I think, you know, more broadly, there's, um, there's something here that has to be considered. You know, uh, as, as you said, Biden served in, in the Senate for so long. You know, he knows what that institution is like. He knows that uh, one of the last places that you want to be is between... Uh, one member of the Senate and, you know, the potential for them to get some media attention, the potential for them to be able to stare down a president and say, you know, you think you have an agenda? Well, in reality, I'm going to be the one who's going to, you know, set the agenda. I'm going to be the one who's going to influence your policies. And Manchin and Fiendima understand that, you know, to their benefit. They understand that their, uh, their, um, their time in the, in, the, uh, in the spotlight is only probably going to last until the end of this year if Republicans retake the Senate. But they're using all of their influence to guide the administration's agenda to set the political discourse of this country. And, uh, you know, it's just unfathomable that Biden doesn't realize that, considering that he 
himself probably once used all of the privileges of the United States Senate to do the exact same thing. Correct. Harris, we, we have only about 40 seconds before we go to break. we bring you back for the next segment if you got the time. We really appreciate it. Sure. Um, you know, it, one thing I don't understand, and I don't know Joe Manchin, but I do know Kirsten Sinema a little bit. The approach of trying to badger and batter these two down seems completely doomed to failure from the start, given their personalities. And I wonder if the White House knows that. We'll talk about it a little more after the break. Broken Potholes coming right back. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. This is your favorite favorite host, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone, here with you today. Um, or with Harris Alec of the Washington Times. Harris, we were talking a little bit between the break about Democrats. There's a sense among some of them, unless they pass this broad, sweeping federal election law that they won't win an election again. I think one of the funniest things in America after every election is whoever wins, the papers come out and say, this is the demise of this other party. And I, I don't you find that just ridiculous every cycle that whoever loses, the, the, all hell's breaking loose, they're going to lose, they'll never win again. I mean, it's so cyclical in this country. And then what happens is the one side that gets in that thinks all of a sudden we have this super majority and we're going to win forever, they commit all these cardinal sins to turn them away. The Democrats have been a perfect example with this, what they've done on crime, um, inflation, um, voting rights. It, it's, it's remarkable, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, I think that there's an old saying in politics that, um, you know, you win an election and you spend two years essentially eviscerating um, the support of all the people who voted for you <laughs> in the first place. And, you know, Democrats did that in 94. They did that in, in, in 2008. Um, so, you know, it's something to, uh, to, to really consider because they always do have a tendency to go well out of the mainstream. And then, you know, there's kind of a course correction. And usually the other party does really, really well in the first two years of a midterm of, of a new president. Um, with this voting bill, though, I think it's an important member. Uh, look, there's a lot of apocalyptic language that's being used by Democrats to justify, you know, striking down some of the laws that you've seen go in effect into, in Arizona and, and in Georgia. Um, and I think this has been a particularly tough sell to someone like Joe Manchin, someone like Kristen Sinema, because they represent, you know, purple to, uh, in the case of West Virginia, very, very conservative states. You know, they're not worried about the state legislatures no. drawing and uh, uh, electoral districts or writing electoral laws that are going to vote them out because they already know they're going to face tough re-elections. I mean, you know, Sienema is going to have a tough re-election battle no matter what in 2024. That's going to be a prime swing state. It's going to be a prime swing state the Republicans will be going after. Manchin represents a state that voted for President Donald Trump in 2020 by the second highest margin of any other state except for Wyoming. So when they go home and when they look at these election laws, you know, they view it as, well, I'm not necessarily really um, worried about losing. I'm worried about offending my conservative-leaning constituency. So they didn't really see this voting rights bill as, oh, my God, if I, we don't pass this, we're going to get drawn out. It's more of like, well, is, are my voters going to see this as a power grab? What are my voters going to see like this? And, you know, they're not worried about that. Well, they're, you know, no. they're messaging to a conservative uh, rural constituency. Well, it's also both their personalities, which people seem to forget about. So um, Manchin just, I mean, he he's going to do what he says he's going to do. 
Um, I, I keep telling this when reporters call me about Kristen Cinema. This is a woman who went to BYU as a bisexual woman, <laughs> had the highest scholarship you can get at BYU, and graduated from here. She's not a woman that can be pushed around. I, I, why they think well, she bends when she goes and who she is and goes to a religious conservative university and thrives and, and doesn't change who she is is just re, it's remarkable to me they don't realize about her. And Manchin's the only Democrat in the country who could win his seat. So the only reason they have yeah. 50 votes and aren't the Senate minority is because Joe Manchin is a Democrat in a state where no other Democrats getting elected statewide. No. no. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, this is this is kind of proof that um, you know Democrats are uh, you know have a lot of issues when it when it when it comes to governing. Um, <laughs> they've got two moderate senators um, who you know again represent you know constituencies that are so different from where the majority of the Democratic Party is, and you know and they think that if you bully and if you shout and if you try to intimidate, you can you know win these people over. And I think you know to their uh, to their detriment, I think they've assumed that. Manchin and Siena are going to be, you know, mainline Democrats who can, you know, be able to push over if the president gives them a call, if the president invokes the fact that, you know, you've got to stand by your party, you can't disappoint a um, a new president of your party when he comes in, you can't necessarily blow his agenda to bits. Um, and Manchin and Siena obviously don't feel that way. You know, they feel like they're representing their constituents. They feel like, you know, they are uh, representing a, uh, a very, very different view. And I think Democrats have kind of struggled to realize that, well, hey, you know, if we have all these grand ambitions, maybe we shouldn't be ambitious, maybe we should be pragmatic and work on things that we can do. You know, Manchin has repeatedly said, and, you know, he, he said this, I think, to maybe his political detriment, he said that, you know, he wants to rework the Trump-era tax cuts um, because he thought they were too geared towards the wealthy. Siena, you know, came out earlier this uh, last year when they were debating Build Back Better, and she said she was in favor of raising some taxes, uh, not necessarily income or business taxes, but, you know, doing a wealth tax and stuff like that. So that's something that the, the, the Democrats would probably do along party lines next month easily if there's consensus on this. And, you know, and they could push it as, well, this is fighting inflation. You know, this is giving us more money for other stuff. But they're not doing that. They're going for the big picture items, and they think that, you know, well, we can just push everyone along. And obviously Manchin and Siena are saying, well, no, you know, we represent, you I'm know, afraid uh, for 20 them. million senators, uh, 20 million in- individuals between us. I'm afraid that, that Manchin and Cinema might, might listen to this podcast and take the advice I'm about, to, uh, Democrats in general, take the <laughs> advice I'm about to give them because then they would do all sorts of things I don't want. And Chuck, I'm sure you don't want either. But shouldn't the White House and the leadership in both houses sit down with Manchin and Cinema and say, hey, just give us a list of the stuff you want and we'll go do all of that? You know, I, I think that that's already happened from my understanding of uh, the conversations that have been had. You know, uh, Senator Manchin gave Majority Leader Schumer a list of what he would have taken in Build Back Better. He gave that same list to the White House. Um, and, you know, and they rejected it because they thought, well, you know, we're going to go bigger and we're going to go bolder. Um, the the problem fundamentally is that, you know, the White House and, and Democrats, again, have this kind of collective mentality that, you know, um, you you can't let your side down and mention Siena. Obviously, you don't necessarily see that. They see themselves as you know individuals, as senators, as you know, in a, in a funny way, they're they're really kind of the last embodiment, at least on the Democratic side, of what the Senate used to be, which used to be you know a chamber made up of individuals representing you know disparate constituencies, pushing what was best for their states, pushing what they thought was best. You know, sometimes working across party lines, sometimes staring down your own party. 
Um, and that's something that I, I think Democrats are just flummoxed by right now because, you know, they say, well, you know, how, how can Siena not vote for something that Biden wants? How can Manchin not vote for something that uh, Biden wants? And to, again, their benefit, these senators, I think, have come out and, you know, they've said, well, we're in favor of this. And Democrats just, you know, say, well, that's not good enough for us. We want more. And then, you know, they throw around this rhetoric. Well, Manchin and Siena aren't saying, you know, what it is that they want. We don't know where they stand. At least in my opinion, you know, I, I haven't covered Senator Siena all that much in depth, but at least when it comes to Senator Manchin, you know, he's been pretty, you know, forthright. Even this week, he said, you know, let's do something on inflation, let's do something on taxes, let's do something on Ukraine and the geopolitical situation, and we'll come back and we'll deal with Build Back Better. And Biden and the White House say, well, let's do Build Back Better as soon as the budget's done. You know, they're, they're not necessarily listening to who they need to listen. They're living in a world where everyone agrees with them, where everyone should agree with them at least. And, you know, it's, it's not realistic. And it's, it's kind of, um, uh, I think it's kind of ironic because Biden campaigned as this guy in 2020 who's been able to make Congress work, who's going to be realistic, who's going to restore bipartisanship. And um, he's, he's not really governing like that at all. And again, no. I, as I said earlier in the show, you know, there are issues that, you know, they can get Manchin on, taxes. Uh, there are issues they can, they can get Siena on. But they're just not pursuing those because those issues aren't what the Democratic Party's base wants. And for the majority of the party, what the base wants is all that matters. Well, and thank you for the segue into Biden, because I have a question about this. And I think what the White House lives in is a Twitter orbit. Mm-hmm. I mean, they follow whatever <laughs> angry, white, college-educated individual with time on a laptop or iPhone all day is just tweeting out. I mean, those are just such angry, bitter people. It's quite remarkable. But you covered Biden in 2020, and there's always this narrative, Joe will reconcile all our hates, he will... He will make us warm. We'll all have a group hug. After watching him in 2020, take take his current year out as president. As you watched him in 2020, what did people misunderstand about Joe Biden that you saw on the campaign trail or in his basement? Well, I think, uh, you know, you know, and I'll address your your initial uh, statement there. You know, the White House absolutely cares whatever the Twitter sphere is doing. And it's really, again, ironic because Biden wouldn't have won the Democratic nomination if he listened to whatever Twitter was doing. Correct. Uh, because Correct. of the fact that he was not loved by, you know, the white college-educated liberals on Twitter. All those guys were in favor of Bernie, Warren, um, you know, whoever else. They hated him. He won because he tapped into something within the Democratic Party, at least, that, you know, was going against whatever the Twitter sphere wanted. Now that he's in office, though, the situation is absolutely reversed. I mean, you know, his chief of staff, Ron Crane, spends more time, I think, on Twitter than he does on the White House email service. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly seems like seems it. Seems like it, um, yeah. Though, yeah. The one thing that I will say about Biden, that this became very, very apparent um, during the uh, during the protests with um, George Floyd uh, after um, the tragic death of George Floyd in police custody in 2020, you know, it became apparent right then and there that for all of his talk about standing up to, you know, the core base of the Democratic Party that he talked about in the primaries, for all of his talk about, you know, not necessarily embracing proposals like Medicare for all. When it came to that issue, when Biden was the nominee, you know, he he essentially did whatever the core party base wanted him to. You know, he didn't necessarily call out a ton of the riots until, um, you know, well until they were after. You know, he stood by the party on that issue. He stood by the activists. Um, and I think, you know, I think potentially... That was to his detriment overall, because I think a lot of voters, you know, maybe heading after the pandemic were seriously considering him. And then they saw his response to the rioting and the, and the protest. They were like, well, can we really vote for this guy? 
Um, and I think that's why the election was as close as it was, apart from, you know, a lot of the shoddy, um, uh, you know, laws that were created just during, during the midst of the pandemic. Uh, but I think more broadly, you know, that was to me when it kind of became crystal clear that, you know, for all of this talk, Biden was not necessarily going to be someone who's actually going to stare down this activist base in the party, you know, this wokeism that was essentially destroying the, the Democratic Party, making it unpalatable to a lot of voters. Um, that was that, that was when that realization became crystal clear to me. And I think as we've seen now with his embrace of specific issues in Congress and his uh, willingness to ignore issues that actually have bipartisan support, I think we're seeing that, you know, this is very much a president who, um, if, if not as beholden to, you know, the core activist um, left in the Democratic Party, is at least understanding that, you know, this is, these are his people. I mean, to an extent, he's not Bernie Sanders, but he's not Joe Manchin either. Well, I think um, oh, and, I think I think Bernie Sanders I think Bernie Sanders actually believes what he says. I mean, you know, how can a country have faith in a president who can't stare down Joy Reid on MSNBC, and we expect him to handle <laughs> Russia and Ukraine? I mean, I, I I just think he goes along to get along to stay where he's at. I mean, he's a perfect example of a wormy politician in a lot of ways. And I hate to say that about a president. And I think Joe Biden's probably a good guy in a lot of ways. But he has he apparently has no backbone to stand up for what he believes. Because I don't think at the end of the day, his political ideology is what he's governing with right now. But staying in power is his number one priority. It's it's it's. Well, and, and I actually wonder if this failure to live up to being a unifier hurts Democrats going forward, because how do you have anyone who carries that message? No, we, just, we just have short memories in this country. I mean, good grief. Six <laughs> months from now, it be something else. I don't know. I don't know. Sam? I would I would personally say that I think the the issue fundamentally with Biden is that, you know, I think I think had he won in 1988, he, he, he probably would have been, a you know, a, a decent president at that point in time, because, you know, he was still very, very much moderate. And if you, you know, if the Biden of, of, the, of the 80s and, and the early 94, uh, you know, in the early 1990s, the guy who worked with Democrats uh, and Republicans on the crime bill who worked, you know, who understood the issues that matter to average voters. I think if I, I think if that Biden was in the White House right now, he'd be a lot more successful. I think that Biden would, you know, look at the 50-50 makeup of the Senate and say, well, I can't get what Bernie wants, but I can sure as hell get uh, what, you know, standing on mansion will let me have. And I'll take the win on that and I'll move forward and. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, I won't let the, uh, the, the good be the enemy of the perfect, or the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, I think that, I think that president would be a lot more successful. I think, however, that you know, as you said, Biden understands that the Democratic Party is moving left. I think he understands that he has an environment where uh, the media is going to give him cover for the things that he chooses to do, and I think he understands that. You know, even though the reality on Capitol Hill is that you've got two moderate Democrats who essentially control the agenda, the reality within the Democratic Party is that, that is not absolutely the case at all. The party's moving to the left, and uh, I think he understands that Harris. given how difficult the 2022 elections are going to be, that he needs, you know, the party base motivated. Harris, and I we, think that's why he's pushing a lot we, of these We've only got about topics. 20 seconds left. If I can get you real quick uh, to tell people how to follow you, this has been a fantastic conversation. We'd love to have you back on again. Sure, it's been a pleasure, guys. Uh, would love to be on any time. Uh, your uh, audience can follow me on Twitter at RealHarrisAlex. Um, and they can also look at uh, my articles on the Washington Times website. Fantastic. Harris Alec from the Washington Times, thank you so much for joining us today. Broken Potholes will be back on the radio next week. But be sure to tune in if you're listening on our podcast. Or if you're not, download our podcast. We do one extra segment. Broken Potholes, back next week.
Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. On the line with us now, a returning guest and one we really enjoyed our conversation with last time, Jeff Mordock of the Washington Times. He is the Washington Times White House reporter. Uh, boy, it's, you've you've had a week and a half here. <laughs> it, it's been eventful. It, it's really um, – it, it hasn't been boring, which is what I like about it. <laughs> what surprised you about the press conference? Either A, he went two hours and couldn't do well at it, or the, all the misinterpretation, or how much cleanup or the C, White House or has C, had to do. Or C, Michelle Sindor's take on it was totally different than everyone else on the planet? Yeah. To I, me, the most the, the most stunning part was this the sheer amount of cleanup that was required. I mean, think about it. We had to have Jen Psaki issue a statement immediately after the press conference concluded. The next morning, she has to issue another statement. She has to go on Fox News. She has to go on CNN. Emily Horn, the spokesperson for the National Security Council, had to issue a statement of clarification. And that's just for the Ukraine gap. We're not even getting into the um, the illegitimacy of the election. Uh, mis- uh, I don't want to say miscommunication, because I know what he, he, he clearly was trying to make a point. But that, that brouhaha. So, I mean, that's just one gap out of you know, three in that press conference that they donated an inordinate amount of time to having to clean up. What, Jeff, I, I, I'd imagine you have friends, reporters who are on the left, which probably most reporters are, you know, covering the White House. What is what what are they saying just privately? Are they concerned about this or they're just all in because he's pushing an agenda they like? I mean, where are they with this guy? I think it's I, I, I think they think they're holding him accountable and I don't want to speak, but the problem they've got with a lot of these reporters, and I don't want to say everybody, I don't want to point it right. out, because no. there are some, there are, I know some very good conservative reporters who were hard on Trump, and I know some very good personally um, left, left, leftist reporters who have asked Biden some tough questions. But I know one reporter, and I, I won't identify the person, had mentioned that they were going to bring their fastball to the Biden press conference. And then went in there and asked a softball question. And the reason it was a softball question is they were coming at the question from the perspective that Biden is right on. And I don't think it, and I think in their mind, they thought they were holding him accountable. But because their viewpoint aligns with the president, they don't realize that that's not a tough question. Right. That press conference, watching it and, and talking about the Ukraine thing. If Trump had held that press conference, oh. the outrage from coast to coast and around the world would be enormous. I have never once heard a president of a major power volunteer another country to be invaded or at least partially invaded. And, what, and that was stunning. What was stunning is and I, and I want to go, I, there's something I want to get into real quick uh, before I answer your question. Back to the cleanup, this just happened. This is why I was a little late joining you guys. He had a, uh, President Biden had a event at the White House today to talk about Intel investing in, chi- investing in a chip factory in Ohio. At the end of the press conference, reporters started shouting questions, and President Biden said to us, I'm not, I don't want to take your questions because you're going to ask me about Russia, and I want to talk about chips. <laughs> that just happened moments ago. Oh, Tough but fair. Tough but right, fair. Apparently, right. wow. I, I, you know, and can you? What would be the meltdown if Trump or Bush or Romney or any other Republican had done something like that? 
either the meltdown would have been out. I think it would have been outrageous. He's hiding from the press. He doesn't want to take tough questions. I mean, I don't know how this differs from when President Trump walked off the Leslie Stahl interview because he didn't want to. He only wanted questions on certain topics. Right. And Biden telling the press, I only want questions on computer chips. It's the same thing. But, uh, you know, this just happened. We haven't had time to see a lot of outrage. But I don't expect to see a lot of outrage over this. I think everybody's going to shrug. He did take one question, which was about computer chips, and then he stormed off. Well, people shouted questions at him about Russia, including whether or not he plans to meet with Putin. Has there anything about this administration surprised you? Um, the lack of press access. I, did, I, I, I thought there would be more of an effort to try to engage, work with the press, spin the press, to try to get the press to try and get favorable stories. And it's just it's just outright disdain for, for the press, even the friendly press. Um, we were all stunned that he went two hours and was willing to take questions from reporters that his team had not previously selected. And you can tell because when he has the name, I mean, he doesn't know who these people are. It's clearly the name is given to him by his press staff. But the fact that he decided to just start pointing uh, surprises. The fact that he went two hours, which was a record of the longest press conference in U.S. history, that that was surprising. And I think it's part of the reset this administration's trying to have after a year that pretty much ended on a pretty bad losing streak. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the Coyotes are like, wow, that's a bad losing streak. <laughs> <laughs> good analogy. Very, very good analogy here for Phoenix hockey fans. Painfully good, Chuck. <laughs> Painfully good. If we have to start comparing him to the Diamondbacks, yeah. we're all yeah. running for cover. <laughs> Jeff, what what are some legislative successes that you think the Biden administration could have if they played more small ball, using sports analogy, versus everything has got to be a grand slam here? Well, I think I can point to two that they've already had. Um, I think the bipartisan infrastructure deal, because they, they were willing to work with Republicans, they were willing to meet with them. They were willing to scale things back. That is that is going to be a success. I, I, that is a legislative success for the Biden administration, and it's why he always talks about it. Also, he did the same thing with his COVID relief package. He scaled that down. He was willing to work with Republicans. And if you look at it, the only two things he really has to tout, it's the COVID relief package and the infrastructure bill, and both of them are bipartisan issues where he was willing to meet Republicans halfway. When things fall apart for him, it's because he's pursuing the far-left agenda, the bidding of the progressives, that the American people and the Republicans don't want. And that is why these bills are failing. And I think a lot of senators in the in Democrat senators are happy in a midterm year to let Cinema and Mansion take the heat for this, and they don't have to go on record. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. What do you feel, how frosty is the relationship for those two Democrat senators with their caucus? How frosty is it? Or is it more? Just- I, it is extremely frosty. I mean, you saw the reports that uh, that Joe Manchin even talked about um, no, going as an independent uh, so he wouldn't have to, so he could take some of the heat off of the Democratic Party. I think it is extremely frosty. They are viewed as holding, as holding up. The president's agenda, I imagine, I mean, I'm sure they're both going to be primary. And um, sure. it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, but, you know, they are, as I said, they are taking the heat off of a lot of Democrats. And I think 
there are some people who are appreciative well, of that. Well, and interestingly, if you go to Kirsten Cinema's website today, uh, the headline has changed. It now says Arizona's independent voice. Which, I, which I plays didn't realize here. that. Which, yeah. which, which plays here. I mean, we, we yeah. take great pride in Arizona, Barry Goldwater, John McCain, which is something Republicans outside the state never seem to grasp. Yeah. We, we like to – I mean, look, this is a place, for example, Scottsdale – that everybody likes to think they're a cowboy, and there's not one cowboy in Scottsdale, right? We like this perception. And so for her, we like in Arizona to be seen as mavericks. We're Westerners. We're cowboys. We do things our way, right? Yeah. And, I, I, it, you know, if I was her, I would definitely drop my D and become an independent. And she'd win. Yeah, absolutely. She'd win. She'd win re-election. I, I, I agree. I think, I think she would. And I think you're right. I think that would have a lot of appeal. Um to the Arizona voter, if she did that, I don't know if she will. I, I, you know, I don't expect Manchin to switch. He's talked about it. I think if he were to switch, it would have happened by now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would guess that also. I agree. I agree. Yep. What else? Um, what else should we be looking for here in the next thirty days? One of the things you should be looking for is more public appearances. Um, I think that's going to be very interesting. Um, to see how that goes, where he goes right now. He's only really been going to swing states. Um, they, as part of the reset, they are trying to get him out to talk to the public more. Um, that, I think, will be, we, we could end up with situations like we had this week where he makes comments off the cuff and then they're, they have to mobilize in a mop-up duty. So it'll be interesting where he goes, what he does how they view, what they view engagement with the American public as. The other thing is, I think we're going to see less of him going to the Hill to plead for his deals. I think he's going to start relying more on his um, legislative team and less on him, which I think is really interesting because it shows, here's a guy who ran has, I'm a deal maker. I know the Senate. I was in the Senate for 37 years. I know how to get things done. And I think that reputation is now completely in tatters. How's his legislative team? I mean, how are their relationships with the leadership on the Hill on both sides? Because I I think you're absolutely right. It needs to be them, not him. But it doesn't seem like they've had a tremendous amount of success working the Hill either. No, they haven't. And if you look at Manchin's comments after he came out on Fox News and said he's not going to support Build Back Better, he very much suggested that he did not like the tactics used by the president's legislative team. Um, and I can't imagine he's the only one. You know, he wouldn't get into specifics, as you know, but he certainly implied that um, that they were certainly using heavy-handed, if not unfair, tactics. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Harris, uh, thank you so much for being on with us today. Really appreciate having you. Uh, I, I want to end one thing I, I saw last night and picked up because I, I think this is important. And I, I wonder how much people in Washington know or care about this stuff. But the president of Ukraine uh, tweeting out last night, we want to remind the great powers there are no minor incursions or small nations, just as there are no minor casualties or little grief from the loss of loved ones. I say this is the president of a great power. Why? How is it that the White House... Congress, how we how do we not understand where this man is coming from? Um, that is a very good question. Uh, why we don't understand where he's coming from? I think that's a very good question. I think it's a I think it's a function of 
this administration doesn't know how to respond to Putin. I don't think they know what to do with him. I think they don't know whether they believe he's bluffing or not. And I think that confusion and the chaos in the foreign policy area that we've seen, um, I mean, sort of the Afghanistan bungle, I think indicates they're really not sure what they want to do. I mean, if you think about it, Biden did not run on any foreign policy issues at all. He was clearly a domestic policy cleaning up COVID president. And I think now he's in the foreign policy arena, and it's kind of surprising, given his career in the Senate, that he is so overmatched. But, you know, I mean, look at at the foreign policy team he put into place. I mean, what you were talking about John McCain earlier, what he said about Blinken when Blinken was up for a nomination in the Obama administration. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I I think a lot of this was predictable. Every time we have a new president, people around the world, bad actors around the world, want to test that president and test their resolve. And if there was one test that Donald Trump passed, it was that one, right? Well, if you want, right, and if you want, um, what I view as a very telling example of the foreign policy bungles, and and to your point about countries wanting to test a new president, Look at the countries Biden has not nominated a U.S. ambassador to. Now, they blame a lot of the ambassadors on Republican obstruction, but these are people he hasn't even picked somebody to send to the Senate. There is no ambassador nominee for South Korea. There is no ambassador nominee for United Arab Emirates. There is no ambassador nominee for Ukraine. Oh my that is stunning. And wow. it shows that this administration that they're not taking it seriously. And also, well, we're at a 29% of the people that he has nominated for ambassadorships are large Democratic fundraisers. Has there been a story written on that? Or can we expect yes. it from you? Good. Are you going to write, I, I are you write another one on it? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I, I have covered that. I, I've written a couple stories about that. Okay, well, well so I'm going to pull that up. Yeah, me too. That, it's, um, that stuns me. And then Guy Taylor, who was our foreign um, desk reporter, he wrote one as well. I wrote one about the nominees, and he wrote one about the lack of ambassadors. So you can look for both of them on the Washington Times website. Um, it, it, that's that's the problem with this. I don't think they take foreign policy seriously. You saw that in Afghanistan. And you got to wonder, we couldn't get people out of Afghanistan. What's going to happen when we start trying to get people out of Ukraine? Uh, it, we're not going to get them it's out. It's going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff Mordock, uh, Washington Times White House reporter. Jeff, how do people follow your work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Jeff Mordock, and you can always go to the Washington Times website. Fantastic. My friend. Thank you so much once again for joining us. We always love having you and look forward to our next chat. I can't wait. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate it. Thanks, our friend. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Well, I, you know, I mean, as, as Harris Alex said, Biden was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. If there's one area that he actually should have some knowledge of and understanding and preparation for it would be this. I I don't even know what to say about this guy anymore. Um, It's remarkable. um, And I don't think he's running the White House. No, I I, I don't think he's I I hate to use the term Manchurian candidate. Right. uh, But let's call him the MSNBC candidate because I do not believe he's running the White House. I do not believe you see his political philosophy and front and center in front of people. I think he's very concerned about keeping what he's got and he gives them all the credit and he makes a mistake because he won a bunch of people over in 2020 
who just were tired of the mayhem they felt. Right. The mayhem they felt, which was real or not real. A lot no, of it's not real because but, they but got it, involved. But it was emotionally it was felt a, it was by a emotional lot of this vote. country. And he's, he's making it worse. A lot worse. And I that's mean, why I wonder how this plays long term for Democrats, because his argument to get elected, the reason he was elected was he said, hey, we're going to be the governing ones. We're going to be the ones that bring back competence and, and compassion and unity and of the all the things he has been competent, compassionate, and unifying are not anywhere on the table. No, not at all. Well, a fantastic show, Kip. Fantastic job lining this up today. Yes, indeed. Um, she had to her, scramble. She, she had to scramble because I want to talk before we close here. We had a guest from AP who was going to cover cover who covered um, the Puerto Rico bankruptcy filing and the judge's ruling. Uh, her name's Danico Cotto, AP News. And she was covering the Caribbean, and she wrote an article, which I think everybody should read, called Judge Signs Plan Resolves Puerto Rico Bankruptcy Battle. Kip was in touch with her. She wanted to do it. Next thing you know, she transferred Kip to AP Corporate PR, and Kip immediately knew what that meant. And AP Corporate PR did not want her to be on her show. So, you know, I got to tell you. Bush League. Bush League move, AP. Yeah, AP, that is a really Bush League move because, you know, how many places around this country right now where you can go on podcasts, on radio shows like ours, and the hosts are only interested in talking to people with their own viewpoint? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And we have been very open, I think, to having people from across the political spectrum and a lot of people who aren't necessarily political on here. And we want more of those folks. We want to have open-minded open-ended discussions. Well, apparently Associated Press does not want to participate. Yeah, I guess so. that's no longer their their thank motto. You, thank you so very much. Fantastic job. Everybody have a fantastic week and weekend, and we'll be with you next week. Thanks a million. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now.